Hello and welcome to the first episode in 2021 of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. As regular listeners may have guessed given the timing, for this year I'm going to revert to monthly shows after last year's near weekly shows. Let's call this then season three and for the season opener I'm so pleased to have an absolute A-lister when it comes to how politics works in the UK. Professor Meg Russell of the Constitution Unit and a former special advisor to Robin Cook when he was leader of the House of Commons. Meg has played a key role in the Right Committee, which led to a wave of very influential parliamentary procedural reform. Welcome to the show, Meg. Thank you, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. And thank you for that very generous introduction. (laughs) Not at all. I hope I can live Uh, up to it. (laughs) And it's really timely uh, to be talking with you because you've just co-authored a report called Taking Back Control, Why the House of Commons Should Govern Its Own Time, which I will put a link to in the show notes for listeners to be able to have a read of. And that report is about the way it's the government and not parliament, which controls not only the daily agenda in parliament, but also that even the very basics of when Parliament sits. Now, unusually, those issues grabbed the headlines in 2019 with controversies over who was in control of the order paper and the failed attempt by Boris Johnson to stop Parliament sitting. But those sorts of powers matter even in much quieter political times. So just to kick things off, because I suspect most listeners will not be that aware of how the system works, what's the sort of basics of you know when parliament sits and and what you think is the problem with how those rules currently operate yeah i'm happy to do so i mean referring back to your comments there i don't know whether you think we're living in quiet times at the moment many people would have thought <laughs> that a government with a single party 80 seat majority in the Commons would be having a quiet time. And that hasn't proved to be the case at all. And um, what sparked us to write this report was in part um, all of the shenanigans over Brexit, where things became very, very unhappy Mm. with and front page headlines, not just in the UK, but in countries around the world about MPs trying to seize the agenda and so on. And as you say, the prorogation. Um, But actually, we've seen controversies over these same issues repeated under COVID Mm. with conservative backbenchers, many of them the very opposite people to those who are upset about Brexit, some of them hardline Brexiteers who have been very frustrated about their inability to get debates on the things that they care about, i.e. the COVID regulations and also other MPs of all parties, including the Procedure Committee, chaired by a Conservative, who have been very frustrated at the government's blocking of debates on how the House of Commons itself should work, whether it should be allowed to operate virtually, whether there should be electronic voting, those those kinds of things. So I would trace these issues back. I mean, you can trace them back centuries. Um, the, the key standing order which controls all of this um, can be dated in its current form to 1902. Um, But you mentioned the Right Committee in your introduction, Mm. which I was specialist advisor to. That's more properly um, the Select Committee on the Reform of the House of Commons, which was set up um, after the MP's expenses crisis in 2009. And it made very central um, to its work this concern about the extent to which it is the government that makes decisions about what the House of Commons can discuss and when, rather than the House of Commons itself. So in theory, at least, um, the government is responsible to the House of Commons, and it only is the government because it is supported by a majority of MPs in the House of Commons. So the House of Commons is, if you like, the senior body in that relationship between government and parliament. It's, you know, it's, it's the government is responsible to parliament, not the other way around. And yet this key standing order, which is standing order number 14, 
um, sets out that the opening words are save as provided in this order, government business shall have precedence at every sitting. So basically the government decides what the House of Commons agenda is with a few exceptions. And <clears throat> listeners may be familiar with some of those exceptions. Um, the best known one is opposition days, uh, whereby 20 days per parliamentary session are set aside for subjects which are decided by, the, by opposition parties and they're shared out between the opposition parties. There's also private members bills on Fridays, which are one of the exceptions in standing order number 14. Um, and then the third key part is backbench business, which is actually something that resulted from the right committee's recommendations um, back in 2009-10, whereby now there's a a, a committee of backbenchers called the Backbench Business Committee, which accepts suggestions from backbenchers for what they want debated. They prioritize things that have cross-party support and they schedule debates. So that all sounds, you know, okay, because the government doesn't control all the time. Um, there are these slots set aside for other forms of business, but they're quite constrained and ironically, it is actually the government that decides when these days are handed out. And the way it's phrased in standing order number 14 is that they are per session. Now, you know, listeners who are familiar with parliament will know that parliamentary sessions are usually a year long. So usually you'd expect that to be, for example, 20 opposition days per year, but some sessions are much longer. Um, and the 2017 parliament pretty much sat in one enormous session that was more than two years long from 2017 to late 2019. There's no guarantee of additional time for opposition members or backbench business in those longer sessions. And during the most heated bits of the Brexit debates, all of that seizing the agenda by people like Dominic Grieve and Oliver Letwin, the government had actually denied opposition time for five and a half months. So, um, the extent to which the government can block things from getting onto the agenda is quite unhealthy, I would suggest. And, and I guess some of those, even when those slots are sort of operating in a reasonably you know, fair way, um, I guess there is also the problem that, like, for example, the opposition day slots, on the one hand, an op OK, the opposition party can pick a topic of debate and in that sense has control of what happens. But... As we've you know seen, I guess it feels like increasingly recently, the government can just decide to say, okay, basically we're not going to turn up, we're going to abstain on the vote, and it doesn't mean anything. So if you actually want Parliament to be able to have a direct control over something, control seems to be you know the verb that's meant to be in favour at the moment. You know things like opposition day motions are a pretty inefficient way. Uh, of doing that. Private members' bills are a little bit different, I guess, because they can become legislation. But again, there are lots of constraints around the practicalities of what you can actually get through as a private members' bill. So it does feel like in that sense, not only, as you say, are those three different sort of safety valves, you know, uh, open to sort of government sort of restriction and control to an extent, is even when they're working at their best, they it still means parliament. Uh, the parliament is pretty much dominated by what the government wants to do, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot there in what you said. I would say private members bills, we mention them because they are one of the exceptions to standing order number 14. We don't really 
um, analyze them in any detail in the report because there have been various reports over the years calling for reform of the private members bill process for, for, from the Hansard Society and also from the chamber's own procedure committee. There are special things about that process. They can be very easily talked out. You need a quorum, various sort of techie procedural things that make it very difficult to get a private members bill. If, Normally what, if, one Tory MP shouting from the back benches object it seems that, that, to be enough to kill a lot of, thing, of good ideas kind of thing. yeah i mean the, the primary way actually in which we mention private members bills in the report is to point out that the chamber's procedure committee has for years wanted reform of that process but it cannot get agenda time to discuss its proposals its own proposals <laughs> oh, i hadn't i hadn't realized change. that yeah. how ironic yeah because the government yeah. denies the time so um Going back, you were talking about opposition days, and actually you've mentioned the name of the report again, and I should say it's obviously a bit of a play on Brexit, take back yeah. control. But it's interesting that at the very beginning of the report, we quote the right committee and its yeah. central concern, where it, it's not exactly the phrase take back control, but it virtually says the Commons needs to take back control from the government. And that kind of resonance from more than 10 years ago to now, and the fact that the failure to implement some of the proposals from the right committee to rectify that landed us up in this very antagonistic, nasty situation over Brexit is, is kind of quite ironic. You're right about the opposition days. Um, with the government um, increasingly getting in the habit of whipping its MPs to abstain. We had a recent event, there, there, there have been several of these where the government whip is to abstain and people rebel against the whip by turning up to vote for the opposition motion or even to vote against the opposition motion. Mm. But this, this desire by the government to just sort of hold their noses, pretend that the opposition days aren't happening was very highly criticised. And that, that, that habit began also in the 2017-19 mm. session. It was a product of minority government, which of course was a very unusual thing happening mm. in that parliament at a time when the government had something massively controversial to deliver in terms of Brexit. And their answer to opposition days was just not to participate because the, it was quite likely they were going to get defeated on things mm. a lot. This was very controversial, including on the government's own backbenches by many members who basically, you know, hugely respect Parliament and want Parliament to be respected. The Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee of the Commons, which is, is now and was previously uh, chaired by a conservative Brexiteer, it was Bernard Jenkin at that time, very outspoken Brexiteer, they were very critical of this approach by the government to basically treat Parliament with disrespect by ignoring opposition mm. motions. And I think it backfired on the government in the end because um, the, the very nerdiest of your listeners uh, may remember that the opposition started using a, a procedure called the humble address to basically require the government to publish documents mm. because the humble address, a bit like, as you say, with private members' bills, that was considered to be one of the few mechanisms that parliamentarians had to actually make something happen for sure, to actually force the government mm. to do something. Um, and they did things like insisting that the legal advice um, on the backstop was published and that caused much nastiness because the government refused to publish it and then the government was voted by the House of Commons to be in contempt of Parliament. 
this all got very, very nasty. And basically that started with the government choosing to ignore opposition days. So in a way it was a sort of ramping up a sort of, you know, people getting out bigger and bigger weapons to attack each other with because the government ceased basically respecting the rules of the game, which, which had been respected for decades previously. So the government has ceased cooperating with parliament in certain respects. And I think a lot of conservative backbenchers as well as opposition members think that needs to be reversed. And so your report is, I guess, the, the parliamentary equivalent of uh, the UN in that sense of uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the grand plan that will, will, will put things back together again rather than leave us in a world of ever escalating uh, yes. sort of procedure and counter procedure uh, measure. So what's, what's the solution? And I'm particularly interested in what's the solution for parliaments where there is a, you know, a one party majority government, because I guess, and you might expect me to say this, you know, I hope that one party majority parliaments are going, going to be an increasing rarity in Britain's future. But well, clearly, they have been in recent years. Yeah. And, they? you know, and but clearly the, the real test in that sense of the relative powers of parliament versus the government is when you have a one party majority, because if you have no party majority, there's a whole set of other political yes. safety nets in that sense that that come in. So, so what's the solution? Well, it's interesting. If you go back to the Right Committee again, its report published in 2009 was obviously in, in, in a period of single party majority government. It was followed then by a coalition, which had a comfortable majority with the, combi the combination of the two parties, but was followed by a coalition. But the Right Committee, I mean, I feel slightly ashamed of this, actually, when I went back, because I was, as an, as an advisor to it, um, I had a role in writing. I didn't write the report, but I had a role in writing the report. And although the report predicted the possibility of a coalition government, I was somewhat shocked going back to it again to see that it did not consider the possibility of a minority government. And of course, minority, really? no, the, 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 the phrase does not appear in the report. So, but I think it, it justifies returning to these subjects now because, you know, the right committee report was not written in special times to deal with coalition or minority. It was written in what people would traditionally consider normal times of single party majority government. And yet it recognized that there was this problem. Um, and we're back to those kind of times now um, for however long it will be. And I think that, I, I, I think the minority government time was very unique and my own guess is that uh, politicians will be wary of forming another minority government following Theresa May's experience. I mean, you can't, you don't always get what you want. And of course, if parties refuse to serve in a coalition, there may be no choice but a minority. But I think that people will have had their fingers burnt by that. So we may be looking at majority government for a, a time to come, be it single party or um, coalition. And I think some of these tensions were visible in the coalition years as well, basically what the reforms that we're proposing would do is, yes, strengthen the opposition to some extent by guaranteeing a fair number of opposition days in longer parliaments and ensuring that what we recommend is that rather than setting out a number of days per session, there should be 
at least one day every fortnight, say, something like that. So the government cannot withhold time for months on end from opposition parties. And if sessions are longer, then there are more opposition days. But mostly what our recommendations would do, and the, the central recommendation, this goes back to your original question about how the system works, the central recommendation would be that the agenda for the week for the House of Commons, which is currently announced to the House of Commons by the leader of the House on a Thursday, and MPs can complain about it, but they can't amend it, they don't actually get any say over it, that rather than it being simply announced, that it be tabled as a motion and that it be amendable and it requires the House of Commons support. That was originally recommended by the right committee and it was the central recommendation from the right committee that was not implemented. What would that do at times of majority government? I think it's very important to emphasize that a lot of the time it would not, you know, as I said at the launch event, this is not a revolution. <laughs> we are not proposing a revolution. We are, we are proposing a kind of safety valve. You know, a majority mm. government is by definition supported by a majority of MPs on most things. And those MPs want the government to deliver on its manifesto that they were elected upon. They generally support the government's policy direction. But there are times, and we saw this before 2010, when the right committee was operating, and we've certainly seen it in recent months under Boris Johnson and COVID, that there are times when government backbenchers are frustrated that certain things are not being discussed. So by having a vote in the chamber on the weekly agenda, you would mostly be empowering government backbenchers and you would be making the government more responsive to its own backbenchers. I would suggest that you wouldn't see the agenda voted down or amended very often. What you would see is the government thinking through in advance what MPs are likely to accept, maybe talking to key figures like, you know, if the chair of the 1922 committee under a conservative government is very frustrated that certain things are not being mm. discussed, those conversations go on behind the scenes and a conservative prime minister, conservative leader of the house would make sure that those concerns were taken into account rather than have a showdown on the floor of the house of commons. In recent months, last September, we saw the chair of the 1922 committee himself leading a rebellion on Parliament's lack of consultation on the coronavirus regulations, a hostile amendment signed by over 50 Conservative MPs to try and get more debate. You know, so if you don't listen to your backbenchers, these pressures come out and sometimes they come out very publicly. If the Commons had had some control over its agenda and could amend and vote upon it, we would never have got into that very fractious situation. And I also think we would not have got into these arguments about seizing the agenda and so on, which other government backbenchers like Dominic Grieve led on yeah. uh, during the Brexit time. And, and, and I guess also, um, you know, one of the things with a power like that, as, as you've rightly said, is that the threat of using the power or attempting to use the power in itself can be quite influential. The other is that even if you have a vote which the government wins, it does draw attention to a decision that's been made. And I can see how if there's a topic the government and the governing party doesn't want to talk about, and, you know, the opposition or an opposition party or combination of opposition parties therefore try to amend 
you know, the agenda to get some time for an issue. And even though they know it's going to be voted down, that provides a moment of, as it were, simple confrontation that is the sort of thing that can make for media coverage and give an impetus to something in a way that at the moment, those sorts of things happen in such a obscure procedural way and so behind the scenes that they almost never make it into news story. So I can see how, and, and the reason I emphasize, I, I, I sort of mentioned that in part is because I think one of the things we're not, we've not always been great at in the Lib Dems is thinking about the power implications of particular procedural changes as opposed to whether the procedure in itself is a good thing or a bad thing, but also what, you know, what does the threat of using it mean? Yes. Um, and, and in fact, we've got this in a very tiny minor way in the party at the moment. One of the things I keep on, prodding my colleagues on is to say, look, I think it should be easier for people to sack me. So I've been elected as party by party members as being party president. And short of kicking me out of the party, there is no way of sacking me as president. And actually, I think in the long run, it's a lot healthier if there is some sort of no confidence mechanism. Um, not because I think it will get used, but the threat of using it, that could actually be really helpful at times where you know things have gone wrong and relationships are broken out and yet a lot of my colleagues immediately react by talking just about the pure process you know well yes. you know when would this ever get and not the power that I goes with it yes i think very often we have a simplistic impression of the way that power relationships mm. work and that very much applies in parliament where you know uh, one of the things about parliament i always say to my students one of the things which distinguishes parliament from government is the transparency of it. The fact that all of the proceedings are going on on the record, everything is transcribed, it's televised, you can see what's going on. And that is very important. And it's important in the way that you just mentioned in terms of sort of exposing things to the media. Um, and that is part of Parliament's power. The fact that the government has to come along and explain itself and its arguments are tested in a public forum is very, very important. And that in itself is a form of power. But also, and I, I, I very much emphasize both of the things that you've just mentioned in the last book that I wrote, which was published in 2017, called Legislation at Westminster, about the legislative process, which coincidentally was co-authored with the same person, Daniel Gover, that I've written this report with. We suggested that there were various forms of power in the legislative process. The only the crudest of which is the ability to defeat to the actual defeat of an amendment. Mm. There's so much more that goes on. And despite the public nature of Parliament, a great deal of what goes on goes on privately in back rooms and even actually simply in people's heads. So I, I'm not talking about sort of, you know, dodgy smoke filled rooms or whatever, but negotiation and compromise very often with the government's own backbenchers behind the scenes people expressing their concerns privately ministers giving concessions and therefore key backbenchers coming to the chamber and saying well you know i'm delighted to be able to support the government they're not just being creeps very often they've had quite sharp exchanges with the government behind the scenes saying i will not support you unless x the government says x and then the backbencher turns up and says you've got my support that that's you know that's part of the dynamic and there is a risk and I think we've seen this over COVID actually that the Johnson government has seemed quite averse to scrutiny it's seen it seems like it it's, has an instinct to run from scrutiny 
and to take decisions privately and just announce them at press conferences and so on and make decisions very late. And I think most people can see that that hasn't made for good decision making, mm. that actually preparing yourself to appear in front of the House of Commons and answer awkward questions and to have to get your backbenchers on side makes you think through in advance what you're putting. And therefore, you kind of you interrogate your own policy more closely yourself mm. and you may spot some of the loopholes before they ever come to the public gaze yeah, ab so absolutely and and again just to use a, a very minor lib dem comparison um we've got our spring conference coming up in what is it about eight weeks from recording this and so i've just been starting to give thought to what are the questions that members may ask me and there, but also therefore, what are the things I need to make sure get done between now and conference so that the answers I can give are better answers? And that, you know, there's a real value. And I'm sure there'll be a moment during the question session, Q&A session that I do, where there'll be a question that will, as it were, annoy me. And I would wish we didn't have those sessions at all. But, you know, you take a step back. You think clearly that sort of accountability is really beneficial because it ends up with better, you know, better decision yeah. making. But and it but also that, communicates mm. to the public, doesn't it? So again, yeah. you know, sorry to keep going on about COVID, mm. but the other, you know, that that suggests that primary legislation mm. is likely to be in better shape before coming to the House of Commons than secondary legislation, mm. uh, which is how a lot of the COVID, you know, rules mm. have been made because it will be subject to this public um scrutiny and will be thought through more in advance but also the fact that those debates are happening as you as you said communicates to the public so perhaps the public would understand the policy better if it had been debated in parliament mm. and those parliamentary debates had been reported and you want the public to understand policy so you know if we go back to the agenda i think the agenda would probably be a better agenda if government had to think before putting it hmm is this going to be acceptable or are people going to kick off about yeah. this? Who should we chat to to make sure they're on side before we put this? That would make government accountable to parliament and it would make for better policy. And, you know, those are both things that are supposed to be built into our system. And related to that is, I guess, the other important area in your report, which is just when does parliament sit? So we've, yeah. we've very much been focusing in a way on what happens when parliament is sitting. But one of the ways of avoiding scrutiny is just having parliament not sit at all you know at particular yeah. time so what does what's your report found on how that system works at the moment and how it could or should be improved well there are various ways of parliament breaking up ceasing to sit it obviously ceases to sit um if, if, when there's going to be a general election it's dissolved um it adjourns quite frequently for um what we what we tend to call recesses so you know before the summer for easter for christmas that kind of thing and then there is prorogation of course and the big controversy over brexit was prorogation um when things were getting very very sticky for it was the johnson minority government the the, the johnson sort of fag end of the minority government at that point and it looked like things were going to get very difficult for him and therefore well therefore was it connected or was it not well that's a you know that's a matter of uh, debate but uh, for whatever reason he chose to prevent parliament sitting for more than five weeks and that wound up in the supreme court prorogation um is a decision which uh parliament has no say over whatsoever 
So dissolution, the way things are at the moment, under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, that the, either you run the full term or there has to be a vote in Parliament to trigger some sort of, there are various kinds of votes in Parliament, but there, some kind of a vote in Parliament has to happen um, in order to make an early general election happen. And actually adjournments do have to be put before the House of Commons. The House of Commons does have to agree to its own adjournment. And in fact, there was an example of that power being used very close to the time of prorogation, because um, you, you may remember that one of the reasons that the government gave for having this long prorogation was a claim that they were making room for the party conferences, which were gonna happen in the autumn. Um, but actually, you normally have an adjournment to allow for the party conferences and MPs decide whether to go ahead with it. When the prorogation had been struck down by the Supreme Court, uh, ministers came back and proposed a motion to adjourn for the party conferences and MPs said, no, sorry, we don't want to. So that showed that that power can work. It's not brilliant. Because again, the way that that motion is put, it's obviously better than the agenda, the, the agenda, which isn't a motion at all. It cannot be debated and it cannot be amended. So if the leader of the house comes forward and says, let's break up for Christmas on the 18th, okay. um, and MPs really want to break up on the 21st, all they can do is vote down that motion for the 18th and they can't even have a debate about it. And that seems to me inadequate. Mm. And we suggest that it should be an amendable and debatable motion but the bigger problem is prorogation where parliament doesn't have to be consulted at all and we say that really there needs to be a parliamentary lock on that so the house of commons should have to vote in support of prorogation i mean some people argue we should get rid of prorogation altogether arguably you don't need it the scottish parliament for example doesn't have an equivalent of prorogation it in effect sits for one long parliament which just breaks up for something similar to recesses yeah. but that would get a bit complicated because the questions about whether we should have a queen's speech it would raise questions about the power of the house of lords because the house of lords power in the parliament act is connected to sessions oh yeah i i, I as you were beginning to to give yeah. the reasons not to copy scotland i was thinking that doesn't sound too bad that doesn't and then and then the house of lords yeah you think just once they, you don't, get into they don't have a house that, of lords of that's course. just yeah, yeah would yeah. be complete nightmare um, so and, the and easiest the easiest thing would simply be to say if there's going to be a prorogation the house of commons has to approve it there's also the question which you may be going to come on to of once they've broken up whether they can come back we've seen lots of arguments of that over the years recall that, that is normally referred to as recall from recess so if if parliament is in recess and something urgent comes up that mps want to discuss they have to rely on the government um to ask for a recall. But again, the standing orders of the House of Commons, I think it's standing order 13 from memory, allow for the Commons to be recalled from recess, but that has to be requested by a minister. The Speaker ultimately agrees it, but um, it's a minister that requests that. But most parliaments um, have some kind of a system whereby MPs themselves or the presiding officer can instigate a recall. We saw an example of this over Christmas when, if you remember, um, everybody was supposed to be getting together in their bubbles for Christmas. Mm. Um, the, the Parliament went into recess, the Commons went into recess, and then there was a Saturday press conference where Boris Johnson utterly threw everything up in the mm. air by saying, we're not going to be able to meet for Christmas mm. as intended. 
And over that weekend, there were lots of MPs, including lots of Conservative MPs, who were saying the Prime Minister shouldn't just be able to do this by fiat. Parliament should come back and debate and approve whether we're going to change the Christmas rules. I think if they had come back, they would have approved it. But there's a point of principle that Parliament should be making these decisions, not the government without parliamentary involvement. But no matter how many of them shouted and however loud they shouted, the government could just ignore that. Yet then over Christmas, when they wanted Parliament to come back to approve the final Brexit deal, ministers call for a recall and it happens. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an imbalance of power there again. The government only is the government because it has the support of the House of Commons, and yet government can do things that the House of Commons doesn't support, and the House of Commons can't do things if, without government yeah. support. So it's a bit the wrong way around. And, and it does feel like that question about when Parliament sits, some power could quite naturally and easily be transferred to the Speaker. Yes. You know, the, 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 yes. the role of the Speaker encompasses a sense of concern for giving MPs from all sides an ability to to be heard yes and, and and it feels like when parliament sits could you know it if it was up to the speaker whether parliament gets gets recalled during during recess that that would feel very much in of... tune with parliamentary tradition and therefore maybe easier to get persuade people to agree to after the last couple of years i think a lot of people particularly on the conservative mm. side are wary of giving too much mm. power to the speaker because the speaker's Slaves, role in brexit yeah. became very controversial um there have been quite a lot of proposals over the years for reforming recall mm. so that mps have more of a say um gordon brown's government um, had a had a green paper at one point that had some proposals in it. There have been various proposals from parliamentary committees. I think you need quite a strong safeguard, partly to protect the impartiality, to protect the reputation of the speaker, so that the speaker can't be accused mm. of just sort of willy-nilly calling MPs back because yeah. they feel like it, you know. But most of the suggestions have been about having a significant body of MPs maybe a quarter, maybe a yeah. third, maybe even a half, which would be yeah. quite hard to achieve when the house isn't sitting. But of course, you know, with, with WhatsApp and, you know, there are numerous ways mm. of communicating now, which would have been mm. very, it would have been very difficult for MPs to mm. communicate with each other about whether they wanted to be recalled 20 years ago. Now you could get a petition organized in 24 hours with lots of MPs yeah. signatures on it. Um, so I think the speaker needs to play a role. The speaker needs to adjudicate. And, and that's the case now. The government does need the speaker's agreement. But there needs to be a significant body of demand, I think. And it needs to be cross-party, I think. So you probably need to say, in times of majority government, yeah. some government backbenchers need to be on side with the yeah. idea. It can't just be an opposition that, you know, has... 30 or 40 percent of the seats which is constantly trying to get government MPs back from yeah. their summer break just to be a nuisance mm. but there have been many occasions in you know if you look back over the last couple of decades things like the war in Iraq when there was a lot of concern on the government's own backbenches and people wanting parliament to be recalled wanting to be consulted and the government not always being responsive and so ending that would be a good idea I think yeah Although that has reminded me of one of my favourite sort of snippets of parliamentary history from the 19th century, when divorce was being legalised. One of the key reasons it happened 
was that Parliament was just kept sitting until enough MPs opposed to divorce had given up, opposed <laughs> to legalising divorce, had given up and gone on holiday, that the vote could be won. So sometimes these procedural <laughs> shenanigans, I guess one could say, are for the greater good. Now, we, we touched on briefly on the House of Lords. I fear we probably won't have time on this episode to talk about that properly. because um, And this is obviously a, an area of your real expertise. And I think it's probably fair to say in the 2010 to 15 Parliament, um, you were right and the Lib Dems were wrong on House of Lords reform in terms Ooh, of... Tell so me I, how. <laughs> <laughs> so I very much hope that's a topic we can return to in, in a future episode in, in more detail. But I think what this what our discussion has highlighted and indeed the experience of Lords reform highlights is the need to not only have a good plan for reform, but a credible route by which it will be implemented. Um, yeah. And, and it, it feels to me like the, the sorts of things we've been discussing you know, so far today are a bit like things like freedom of information, that you really have to get a government to do it soon after it takes up power, when it's still flush with the with the perspective of opposition, possibly if it's, you know, been a change of party, but certainly where there's a degree of, in a sense, enthusiasm to start things afresh and to do things the right way. Because the further you get into a parliament, the more the, the temptation to just not change things quite yet, to not quite open things up quite yet, sort of drag, drag ministers in particular back away from initial good intention. So what's what's the route by which you can best imagine the reforms in, in your report uh, coming into practice? Okay, that's a really good question. Since you mentioned the Lords, I think there are some parallels to be drawn here with Lords reform. I'm very flattered that you think I was right and the Lib Dems were wrong, but you haven't elaborated even yeah. for me, let alone for I, your I, listeners. I, I will leave that there. therefore as the little trailer <laughs> hanging in right. the air for people back to a future episode. I, I must say one of that. one of one of my favourite dinner party stories back in the days when we used to have dinner parties uh, was to recall the conversation that I had with Nick Clegg where I told him that Lords reform was more difficult than he anticipated. And I think on that, uh, yes, I was right yeah. and he was wrong. If that if that's what you're yeah. referring to, having worked for Robin Cook, yeah. um, you know, I you could see behind the scenes just how difficult it was. And I think what the reforms that we're proposing here were referred to at the launch event as, as a modest manifesto yeah. by the former clerk of the House of Commons. And I think here, as in Lord's reform, small reforms can actually make a huge difference. I think the history of Lord's reform shows that. And I think here, you know, we're, we're, we're proposing some small tweaks to standing orders. But if we made the simple change of making the House of Commons responsible for deciding its own agenda, I think that would unlock an enormous amount. Um, so I think small reforms should not be, you know, frowned upon. Sometimes they can make a, a big difference. Um, and yes, on your point about how to get it done, well, I suppose crudely looking at what the report says, um, one of the things that we suggest is that there does need to be a, some sort of a cross-party formal review, taking, taking forward some of the issues <clears throat> that we discuss in the report and making firm recommendations for procedural change. And that that could be done by the procedure committee, but as we've already referred to, the procedure committee has enormous difficulty getting its proposals debated because of the government controlling time. Uh, that's been the case uh, on the on uh, virtual working under COVID, and it's also been the case historically on private members' bills and other things. Um, we suggest that maybe the speaker 
could set up some sort of a cross-party body to look at this and report. Several of the speaker candidates, actually, when Burkow was when John Burkow was replaced, argued that there needed to be a review of standing orders. And I think, you know, we've had such big flashpoints over the last few years looking at this really seriously perhaps under the speaker's auspices would be sensible. And then you would have a set of proposals on the table. The question does become, how do they get agreed? I think a public process, I hope we've begun that process with the publication of the report and a formal review would take this further, just to sort of build up a head of steam, you know, get people talking about the issues, get senior figures coming out saying that they think they're a good idea. You know, I was delighted that, um, just after the report was published at the launch day and then in the subsequent days, the chair of the procedure committee welcomed some of the recommendations, as did the shadow leader of the House, as did the former leader of the House, uh, David Liddington, who's very widely respected. So, you know, if you can get more people coming mm. out for something, you build up a sort of head of steam. But at the end of the day, yes, with the government control of the agenda, if the government is hostile to your proposals, it's quite difficult to get change. Of course, the House of Commons does control its own standing orders mm. in theory, you know, um, so a majority in the House of Commons can change standing orders. But if the government is saying stay away, most government MPs will not want to, you know, get involved in that. Mm. So it often these things often come with, well, one of two things, a change of the leader of the House. Mm. We have a very conservative with a small C as well as a big C leader of the house at the moment in Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, but if, you know, as I just said, David Liddington was much more friendly to these proposals and he was a conservative. You saw this under Labour, you know, Robin Cook was a reforming leader of the house. John Reid was not. Jack Straw was. So the personalities matter. And if you get, if you got a leader of the house, maybe later in this parliament who felt that there were some there was some bad blood between yeah. the government and its backbenchers that needed fixing. Perhaps they would look to some of these yeah. proposals. Otherwise, often it's the opposition mm -hmm. who picks up proposals and wants to beat the government over the head with them and say, why aren't you doing this? Why yeah. aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Then they find themselves, they maybe put it in the manifesto, find themselves in government. And then, of course, they have to do it. And yeah. they haven't quite acquired that government mindset yet yeah. that wants to block all, you know, yeah. all criticism. Yeah. You saw that with the right committee was a bit like that. You saw that very much with the introduction of uh, the select committees, which yeah. is seen as being, you know, one of the biggest, most important reforms of the last 50 years back in 1979, the switch from mm. Labour to the Conservatives, you get not just a new leader of the House, but a leader of the House from the who was formerly in the opposing party says, yep, we said we'd do it, we'll do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, these things can lie on the table for a long time, quite often, before they get picked up. But yeah. the more people are talking about them, the more people are agitating yeah. for them, the greater the likelihood that they go in different people's mm. reform manifestos yeah. and that they ultimately happen. Well, hopefully in a very small way, then, this podcast has helped contribute towards parliamentary reform. And I think particularly because the measures you mention are ones that don't have a public expenditure commitment. Absolutely. Or any sort of, you know, more money for politicians angle to them. And also because they're relatively quick to do, you know, the standing order amendment is a relatively simple, straightforward uh, measure. Uh, there's hopefully there will be an opportunity in the next few years to bring them to life because you've given a really good explanation about why 
these sorts of reforms will be really And I think this is nerdy stuff, I absolutely do not deny. But, you know, I think the public can probably see the logic that Parliament is responsible to the public and the government is responsible to Parliament. So really, it should be Parliament which mm. is making the decisions here, not government. Although very often, Parliament will support government mm. because very often government has a majority there yeah. and that's all fine, but it's an accountability question. Yeah. And that accountability chain goes all the way back to the public. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well put. So thank you so much for your time today. Very much hope can have you back on the show in the near future to talk about House of Lords reform. Well, thank you for Nick allowing me to sound to off and uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly do so on Lords reform on a Lovely. future occasion. <laughs> uh, so listeners can find Meg and her colleagues in the Constitution Unit on Twitter at conunit underscore UCL, myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including the report that Meg has co-authored and also the book uh, that she mentioned, Legislation and Westminster. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast. Remember, you might be helping contribute towards parliamentary reform if you do share this podcast. And do give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you until next time. Mm -hmm.